Good morning again, everybody. We are continuing on in our series on the book of Psalms. I'm going to put our favorite yellow microphone down so we don't have to look at that. And we are in our, um, in our series, actually, on the gospel rhythms, which we are starting this new year off by looking at something that I'm calling the gospel rhythms. The gospel rhythms are these six core spiritual habits that form our life around our spiritual formation and the mission that we've been given as followers of Jesus. So I just kind of want to set the stage again. We took a one-week break. Uh, Doug Swaggerty came and preached for us last week, which was great. But the gospel rhythms, why are we doing this series? Well, for my Christian friends who are here, we often struggle, I think, as I've talked to many of you, and over the course of my pastoral ministry, I've often talked to people who feel a disconnect between Sunday and Monday through Saturday, between our spiritual lives and the rest of our everyday lives. And we have been kind of trained within the church that we need maybe to add a class or an event or a program to our lives. And so we kind of tack that onto our lives and say, maybe this will help me figure out how to navigate the integration of my faith Monday through Saturday. But the reality is often we still feel like we're living disintegrated and divided lives, that there's a disconnect. So the gospel rhythms, I hope and I pray, will help us have not only a vision but a path for living an integrated life with Jesus at the center, that this life, that this life of wholeness and holiness is, on the one hand, countercultural but also intriguing. So that is for my Christian friends. For those who are exploring the Christian faith, you are probably interested if you are here and you have questions and you'd like to learn more about Jesus, you, you probably have questions about the content of our beliefs. What is it that Christians believe and why? But you might be, and based on my experience and understanding, I think you might be more interested on or about the question, what does it even look like? to be a Christian. As Christians, often we're better about sharing our statement of faith than showing our statement of life. In the early church, uh, followers of Jesus, they were called, they, they had two names that they went by, and they were called by those who came into contact with them. Some called them believers because they did believe and subscribe to a certain set of beliefs that were distinct and different. But in Acts, we learn in the early church, they were, they were also called, and more often called, followers of the way, because Christianity was seen as a whole new way of life. So I hope this series for you helps you see what it might look like. What does it look like to believe in and follow Jesus? So the gospel rhythms are just one way for us to capture this new way of life that Jesus came for us to live, to give us to live. Let's look at the slide. I just want to do an overview here. These are the gospel rhythms that we're talking about, these six things. Because of the grace given to us in the gospel, we seek to be people who give blessing to others through our words, actions, or gifts. Open our lives to community and hospitality. Sabbath regularly for worship and rest. Pray daily for grace renewal for ourselves and for others. Engage people intentionally to help them move towards Jesus. And listen to the scriptures consistently and meditatively. So we've done listen. 
Two weeks ago, we looked at open. Today, we're going to focus on pray. The rhythm of praying daily for grace renewal for myself and others. So prayer, its place in all these rhythms, it's kind of like the breath that gives life to all these things. There's a great quote that I came across this week from P.T. Forsyth, and I have that on the screen for all of you, that describes how we often think about prayer. He said, prayer is often represented as the great means of the Christian life, but it is no mere means. It is the great end of that life. It is, of course, not untrue to call it a means. It is so, especially at first. But at last, it is truer to say that we live the Christian life in order to pray than that we pray in order to live the Christian life. So prayer, he says, is the great end and the great purpose of the Christian life because it's connecting to God, it's communing with God, it's conversation with God. So we'll be looking at Psalm 3 as we talk about the rhythm of prayer. Elizabeth read that psalm for us already. In the context of this psalm, it's the third psalm, so it follows on the heels of Psalm 1 and 2. And scholars of the book of Psalms say that Psalm 1 and 2 are the two introductions to the whole book. And so Psalm 3 is placed at the beginning of the book of Psalms. The Bible's prayer book is really the first psalm, really the first prayer. as a model prayer that we are to pray in the morning. Throughout church history, many traditions have used Psalm 3 as a part of their daily morning prayer routine. And this psalm was written and given to us to be used as a daily prayer. I think it's a great psalm for us to look at as we're thinking about our own prayer lives because it helps us explore and answer four questions that come up when we talk about prayer. The first one is, why do we pray in the first place? The second one is, well, what do I pray? What does that look like? What do I say? Thirdly, we say and we ask, when do I pray? What does that look like? And fourth, I'm adding a fourth one. You might not see it on your outline. I'll explain it. It's going to sound weird at first, but who to pray? Who is praying? That's the fourth question. Let's look at the first one. Why pray? Why should we pray? If you look at the little introduction that comes before the actual text of this psalm, it tells us where this prayer came from. It was written by King David of Israel when his own son, his son who was named Absalom, staged a coup against him and tried to take over his kingdom and his throne. And David was forced to flee from his palace. And that's when he wrote and prayed this prayer. Obviously an extremely difficult time in David's life. In this context, these contexts in the Psalms are given not to limit the use of this prayer, as if this is a prayer for you to pray when you feel like your kids are staging a coup and trying to revolt and take over your home. Although sometimes I need a prayer just like that in our home. This prayer that David prayed in his struggle was written and it was preserved to be a model prayer for anyone who's struggling with the daily struggles of life. And the first thing it does is to show us why we should pray in the first place. And there's two big reasons why we should pray. The first one is we are all in a battle. If you look at the psalm again, you'll see it's filled with all the battle imagery. It's a fighting psalm. It's, David says, I have my foes. They're rising against me. 
He asked God to be a shield. He says, thousands are surrounding me. And in verse 7, he talks about his enemies. If you go back to the beginning of the psalm in verse 2, David shows us where this battle and this fight is being played out. He says there in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for you in God. And the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh, and it carries with it the meaning of the whole person, the emotional, spiritual center of our lives. David was facing all these challenges, political challenges, military challenges, family challenges, but the real battle, he says, was an inward battle at the soul level. It's what his enemies were saying. It's what his circumstances were saying to his soul. There's a saying that you probably have heard It's on all kinds of graphics on the internet and all that. It's become kind of a cute little saying, but I love it. It says this, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. So be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. So I searched and did some research. I was like, where did this quote come from? If it's just like a cheesy quote that's on like, um, you know, on these cute pictures and everything, then I don't know if I want to share that. But I was like looking for it, and I'm like, who said this quote? And I've, I, I found out that it was the Reverend John Watson, who was a Presbyterian pastor. So I was like, yes, Presbyterian <laughs> pastor. I love that saying. I think it's profoundly true. I think it's true to Scripture and true to life. From the perspective of the Bible, all of life is a battle. All of life is a fight over where we are looking to for salvation. There's a commentator on the Psalms named Patrick Reardon. He said, the Psalms are prayers for those engaged in ongoing spiritual conflict. No one else need bother even opening the book. That we pray because we are all engaged in ongoing spiritual conflict. Salvation. When David prays for salvation in the Psalms, we need to understand what he means by that word. In the Psalms, it means being rescued from anything that keeps us from living a faithful, full, and flourishing life with God at the center. So it's a big word. It encapsulates everything from this life and the next. David's enemies are different than ours. Ours could be summarized with These three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil, anything that keeps us from living a life with God at the center, a life of fullness, a life of flourishing, a life of faithfulness. So his enemies were different than ours, but they were saying the same thing. You don't need God for that kind of life. You don't need God to be rescued. You don't need God to be delivered. And so the battle of Our lives is this question that Psalm 3 puts before us. Will we look to God and His strength, or will we look to some other form of self-salvation? There's no neutral ground. I remember growing up in my neighborhood, we would play outside all the time, and we would just let loose on the neighborhood. And in in our neighborhood, there developed a couple gangs. These were not like hardcore gangs, these were just like 8-year-olds and 9-year-olds and 10-year-olds that were like, we don't like you and we're in this group and we don't like you and we're in that group. And somehow it all came about that I was in this, me and my brother were in this one group and another group was over here in this part of the neighborhood and we said, we don't like each other and we're going to have a rumble and we're going to fight and we're going to fight in that driveway and it's going to be at this time 
And so it was all scheduled and planned out. And so my brother and I, we were kind of the young ones in one of these groups. And we came to our mom and we were like, Mom, there's going to be a fight. It's going to be in that driveway. Can we go? And my mom said, yeah, yeah, take this golf club and you take it. No, I'm just kidding. She said, no, you can't go and do this fight. And so me and my brother, at that point in time, we said, I guess we're not going to this fight. And probably I was chickening out because I didn't want to go anyway and get punched in the face. But we were, we were, I remember being in our living room and looking out the window at the corner and seeing these two groups go at it. Prayer. We pray because no one is in the house behind the glass in the window watching. We're all in the fight. We're all in the fight over which voices will define our lives. So prayer is what opens up our eyes to the spiritual significance of all of life. The battle in our souls over whether God is central or whether God is peripheral. So we pray because we're all in a battle. Second part of the answer in Psalm 3 is we pray because we're all in a battle and we can't win ourselves. If you look at verses 1 and 2 again, what is the key word? It's many. David says, many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. David was in a situation where he realized he couldn't win by himself. And if you're following along with us in our Bible reading plan, we actually read this. I think it was on Friday or Thursday. We read the story of this happening. And so there's more to the story. The reason his own son was trying to take over his kingdom was in large part because of his absentee parenting. There was a breakdown happening all throughout David's family. And he was more and more removed from that. He wasn't stepping in and addressing it. So up until now, he thought, I think we'll get through this. I'm just going to ignore this. I'm just going to avoid this. And he thought he could manage it. But now he knew he couldn't. He was brought to the end of himself. And he was humbled. And he prays. The psalm is meant to show us we can't win the battle to live the faithful, full, and flourishing life with God at the center by ourselves. Let me share an illustration. This one is especially for our middle schoolers here because it's a video game illustration. So in a video game, often whatever kind of video game it is, you can get powered up, right? Everyone's like, no. That was like Nintendo back in your day. We get powered up by something, so you become stronger and you're able to defeat your enemies better, right? They're like, no. Come on. You're, you, you're powered up, and so that you're squashing your enemies. You're invincible. You got the power, and they don't. That's the power-up in a video game. We tend to live in one of two directions. We live like we are powered up and invincible, or we live like our enemies are powered up and invincible. Like our struggles, our difficult circumstances, the hard stuff in our life is powered up. David needed himself to be brought down to size. And he needed his enemies, the many voices in his soul that were saying, God is not in this, to be brought down to size. And this happens in prayer. In prayer, we see again that nothing is bigger, nothing is more, is more strong than God and his invincible love for us in Christ. Let me share a quote 
One commentator of Psalm 3, Peter Craigie, says it like this. He says, if one gazes too long upon the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in the mind's eye to gigantic proportions. The hypnotic power of the enemy is broken when one turns one's gaze toward God, who is able to fight and grant the victory. So, to apply this, the place in our lives right now where we say, I can't handle this, the place where we feel overwhelmed, the place where we feel like this is too much, might be the very place where we might learn to pray. How many voices do we encounter on a daily basis that tell us the most important reality, the central reality that we need in our life is not our strength, it's not our ability, it's not our strategy and our wisdom, but it's God's saving power. Prayer is what brings God back into the picture. Prayer is what brings perspective to our lives. Why pray? Because we're all in a battle that we can't win by ourselves. Second question and second point, what to pray. One of the biggest obstacles we have to having a vibrant and living prayer life is we simply don't know what to say. Our minds lose focus, we lose our train of thought, and we struggle to figure out what we're even to say. Verses 1 through 4, I think, give us four things that can characterize our prayers, to bring them to life that we can learn through practice. One, I'm going to go through these one at a time. We have these on the slide. Pray to God. You might say to me, thank you, Pastor Eric. That was a very profound point. I'm sure you had to study very hard to that. Pray to God. Let me explain. There's a big difference. There's a world of difference in talking to ourselves and talking to God. A lot of our prayer lives is just kind of a mental exercise where we're just talking to ourselves. In each section of this psalm, in verses 1 and 2, and 3 and 4, 5 and 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, David is addressing God by name. He's saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. He's talking to God. He's not just thinking. He's engaged in conversation with God. Second, what to pray? Pray our situation. David here is describing in these vivid and emotional terms what is going on on the outside in his life and what's going on on the inside in his soul. And sometimes we think, if God knows everything that there is to know, why do I have to pray to him in the first place? Why would I describe to him what's going on inside me or what's going on in my life if he already knows? The answer is it's not for him, it's for us. Our eyes are open to see the spiritual dynamics happening within our hearts as we speak our situation to God in honesty, in raw emotion, we come to better understand ourselves. So we pray our situation. Thirdly, pray truth into your situation. In verse 3, we see David is not just praying about his fears, his struggles, and his threats. He's applying the truth he knows into those specific struggles. He says in verse 3, God is a shield around me. He's my 360-degree defense. I don't have to be afraid. He's my glory. This is about his reputation and not mine. He is the lifter of my head. He lifts me from despair and depression to live in confident hope. There's a threefold description of the enemies attacking. Many, many, many. And for each of those, David prays truth. God is my shield. 
God is my glory and the lifter of my head. So prayer, we see, is how what we know is applied to our specific situations and struggles. It's in prayer that our professed theology becomes our lived theology, and it's how the gospel gets into our soul in the exact places where we're struggling to believe. Pray to God, pray your situation, pray truth into your situation, and fourth, pray loud. Verse 4, David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. Young kids know how to get their parents' attention. They cry, and if their parents don't come, they cry louder. David is praying loud. In many traditions, in many religious traditions, prayer, the picture we have of prayer is a very serene, quiet moment. We just have our cup of tea, and we're sitting in peace. We even use the word and the term quiet time to describe our regular times of prayer. There is a place for that kind of prayer, but here we see prayer is crying out. David is not sitting cross-legged, just kind of hanging out in a small dark place in the quiet. He is crying out in the midst of life with emotion and with passion. Pray to God. Pray your situation. Pray truth into your situation and pray honestly. Pray loud. God hears those kinds of prayers. Third point when to pray. We pray as a daily discipline. Verse 5 tells us that David started when he woke up in the morning. In verse 5 he says, I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. He continued his prayer that he was praying the previous day. When he woke up, he reengaged in that prayer. He said in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, and save me. He was crying out to the Lord, thankful for how God had answered him Yesterday, giving him the ability to sleep in peace and to awake another day. And so what we see is that David's prayer from yesterday didn't get automatically transferred to the next day. It's why the manna in the wilderness, it only lasted one day. It's why Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Prayer is the daily discipline of seeking the faithful the full, the flourishing life with God at the center. There's a Cambridge divinity professor named David Ford. He wrote a book called The Shape of Living on our spiritual formation and the dynamics of how we change. And he starts the book by saying the most significant factor in our spiritual lives is the conversation going on in the community of our hearts. Here's what he says. He says, our lives are shaped in large degree by the loudest and most influential voices in the community of our hearts. Could be our father's demeaning or affirming voice, our mother's critical or nurturing voice, our friends' encouraging or betraying voices, our bosses, our wives, our husbands' voice. These are the voices that shape our hearts. He goes on to say, an experienced psychotherapist told me, That a great deal of his work has to do with the quality of community that clients carry around inside them. What's the community that we carry inside our hearts? Psalm 3 shows us that prayer is daily placing God and his voice at the center of that community. It's daily seeking. It's daily listening for his voice to drown out and define all the other voices. 
C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, describes this dynamic so powerfully. There's what he said there up on the screen. He says, the real problem of the Christian life comes when people, where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. Prayer is that daily discipline of tuning our hearts to that voice. Let me ask a question. If there was one thing that you could change about your daily routine, what would it be? Now, for some of you, maybe for many of you, you would say traffic. If all traffic could just be vanquished and banished by a wave of the wand, that would give me a good day. I saw this week in the uh, OC register that Tustin and Irvine have been given a grant to synchronize traffic lights. And I was reading this article, and it said one of these roads is that they've, given, they've been given this grant to work on is Tustin Ranch Road. And I said, yes, that's the road that we live off of, synchronized traffic lights. How awesome is that going to be? So I'm so excited about that. So I'm not going to say that if you pray every day, God will take all your traffic away. That's not going to happen. But in the daily rhythm of prayer, God will address the traffic going on inside of our hearts. Donald Miller, or I'm sorry, Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, said, learning to pray, it doesn't offer you a less busy life. It offers you a less busy heart. I think this is how we're to understand verse 7b, which when we read that, you might have thought, what's going on with that? Verse 7, the second part says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. What's going on with that? Well, one scholar says the primary significance with the cheek and the teeth is with respect to speechlessness. In other words, God is silencing all the other voices that seek to define our lives and drive our lives. Anything that is trying to take center place in the community of our heart and soul. David is praying, silence those voices. I want to hear your voice. The daily discipline of prayer, then, is where God delivers that knockout punch to all those other voices in our souls. It's how he takes center place again. And the gospel defines us, and the gospel drives us. So that's when to pray. Fourth point. This is an added point on the outline. Who to pray. It sounds weird at first, but let me explain what I'm talking about, because I think it might be the most important question for us to answer in this psalm. Anytime the topic of prayer comes up, I think there are probably two reactions. On one hand, there's a desire to grow. On the other hand, there's probably a heavy dose of guilt. There's a desire to grow because if there is a God and I can have a conversation with Him, I can grow close to Him, then I want to learn how to do that. On the other hand, there's a heavy dose of guilt that we might feel because we can say to ourselves, I'm not praying enough. I don't know how to pray. I barely can pray for five minutes. It's such a struggle. What we need to see is that this psalm helps us answer the question of who to pray. 
Because in order to pray like this, we need to see that this psalm was prayed for us before it's a psalm that can be prayed by us. We need to see that we are never praying alone. Let me share an illustration. Say you work for a large company, you're somewhere in middle, upper management, and you're finding all kinds of obstacles that are getting in your way for accomplishing the work you need to do. And it's like you're beating your head up against the wall. You're like, I can't solve this. I need the big guns to come in and take care of this, but I'm not going to just send an email to the CEO. Is he going to even see my email? He's just going to ignore it. It's just going to be deleted. But what if your best friend happens to be second in command at the company? And he or she has the ear of the CEO. And you go out to lunch with, the, with your friend. You, you explain the issues you're having. They see your issues and they see this is really hard and this is affecting our company. I'm going to talk to the big man and the big woman up at the top and I'm going to get this addressed. And so they come and they share with you. I had a conversation with our CEO. I shared the issues you're having. All you need to do now is shoot them an email. Let them know what you need and they'll take care of it. All of a sudden, you have a brand new confidence that you'll be heard because you're not alone. This is the picture of the confidence we can have in prayer. Jesus prayed this psalm for us so it can be a psalm that is prayed by us. We can know God will always hear us when we cry out, God, be my shield, be my glory, be the lifter of our heads. Psalms are meant to be read in three ways. They are David's prayer. We, we realize David prayed this. They're prayers he wrote for others to pray. They are also, thirdly, the prayers of Jesus. The Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus. He quoted this book more than any other. When we read Psalm 3 as a prayer of Jesus, we see he so loves us. He so wants to save us and lead us into a life of faithfulness and fullness and flourishing. Now, and in eternity, that he prayed this psalm that he prayed for us as he battled the enemies of our soul head on, our own sin, the world's voices that claim that God is absent and irrelevant, the spiritual evil that tries to keep us from God. In verse 8, David prays, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. He's saying, if I am saved, if the king is saved, then the blessing comes from you, God, to all your people. If God answers David, then all the people are blessed. He says, I'm not just praying for me. It's the same with the greater David, Jesus. At the cross, Jesus was surrounded by enemies who were taunting and mocking him, saying, Luke 23, 35, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, they were saying, there is no salvation for you in God. But what we see is that Jesus didn't save himself because he was saving us. He trusted God fully amidst all the voices that were saying, there is no salvation for you in God. And when he, but when he cried out aloud to his father, instead of being heard, there was silence. Jesus was abandoned on the cross so we would never be. Jesus' cry was not heard, so all our cries would always be heard. He won the battle that we could never win, so that in all our battles, in all our struggles, we would know that we are heard, and God is working salvation 
more deeply into our hearts, no matter what we're facing. This is what it means when the New Testament says Jesus intercedes for us. The word intercedes means stand between. And the picture is that as we are praying to God, Jesus himself is interceding. He's standing in between those prayers, praying for us and with us. Jesus in his perfect life and death, in his victorious resurrection, and in his ascension is always first praying for us. I want to close by looking at Romans 8, where it describes the impact of Jesus' praying for us. It says in Romans 8, 34 and following, Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We never pray alone. So we can come no matter what, knowing we are heard and God will meet us where we're at. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for how this psalm draws us in. Draws us in to learn to pray. And I ask, no matter where each one of us is this morning in our prayer lives, that you would encourage us. That you would encourage us that no matter what it is that we're facing, that you hear us. That you would encourage us as we remember that we never are praying all by ourselves, that we're never abandoned, and that your saving power is available to us in all our struggles, in all our circumstances. And I pray that you would meet us even this morning in those things. As we bring our lives before you and as we pray, Lord, salvation is yours. May your blessing be upon your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.